Welcome to the Marshall Graham Interviews. I'm going to replay you an interview I did with Nick Tamro from March 1st, 2022. So if there are things that we talk about going on in Oakland Park and at Sam Houston Park that don't, that don't make sense, this interview was from almost a year ago. At the time, Nick was in his first uh, year calling races at Sam Houston Park. Nick, of course, is a fixture on the In the Money Media Network, longtime qualifier for the NHC, morning line maker, public handicapper, good friend of mine. So I really hope you enjoy the interview. Unfortunately, the standoff between the Texas Racing Commission and HISA has prevented us from hearing Nick's excellent race calls and betting on the Sam Houston product this year. So hopefully that gets resolved soon. Once again, we are brought to you by Millridge Farm. Millridge Farm stands Oscar Performance in Aloha West. Aloha West Breeders' Cup winner uh, Oscar Performance has his first crop on the racetrack, and they are doing very well. Please check them both out. Again, we appreciate Millridge Farm sponsorship. All right. Uh, again, pleased to be joined by Nick Tamro, the uh, now the most recently the race caller at Sam Houston Race Park. Tell me a little bit about calling the races. Thanks, Marshall. I appreciate you having me. Excited to be. Uh... On with you. So yeah, I'm a I'm a horse player turned race caller. Um, I, it was all sort of by chance that it happened. I've obviously been in been in, into racing for 30 years or so. I'm only 38, so it's been it's been a, a long mm-hmm. ride. Um, but so I had been I befriended uh, a mutual friend of ours, Travis Stone, years ago. He's a race caller now at Churchill Downs. At the time, he was working at Louisiana Downs, and so we were driving up for a super derby. My dad and I would go up every year for the super derby. And I was bringing uh, mine and Travis's mutual friend, Michael Chamberlain, who at the time was the race caller at Turf Paradise. He had been working at Sam Houston before that. And so I would pick Michael up at the airport in Houston and he would ride up to, to Shreveport with us. And so we were at a, a rest stop along the way. And I said, you know, what? I'm going to ask Travis if I can call a race today. And he said, you should, I think he'll let you. And so I did. And, and he was like, yeah, you can call the third race. So there were only seven horses in it and they turned for home. And I had absolutely no idea who was taking the lead. I mean, I was completely and totally clueless. And, and Travis was standing behind me and he, he sort of not whispered, but he said, dice doctor. And I said, dice doctor. So <laughs> I, I was really, I was really pleased that he was there. And so over the course of the next couple of years, going up there and visiting him, he let me call races here and there. Um, another mutual friend of ours, Pat Cummings was the announcer for a season at Maynard Downs in Austin, which is mainly known for being one of the largest uh, gatherings of Willie Nelson fans uh, at one of his concerts in the eighties, also the grateful dead and Maynard Downs is now defunct, but uh, Pat and I closed it basically. So he was the race caller there for a meet and he had to go to Dubai for a weekend. So I got to call two full cards. So I had two full cards under my belt when Sam Houston uh, asked me to call last May when our uh, prior announcer moved to, to parks in Philadelphia and, um, I enjoyed it. It was good. It was good enough. I, I walked down to the, the general manager's office afterwards and he said, wow, he said, you were actually pretty decent at this. And I said, well, I mean, I can embarrass myself in a number of different ways. I wasn't going to embarrass myself doing this. So uh, it was a lot of fun. It ended up working out really well for me that we inherited some dates. As I'm just filibustering you, but we inherited some dates from uh, from Ratama, which is a racetrack in San Antonio. And so I was able to call those dates mainly because I was a local guy and they didn't want to bring somebody in by the end of it. They said, hey, you want to try and do this uh, full time? And so I, I, I said, all right, let's go for it. And uh, here we are. Well, that's great. Well, anyway, look, you truly are a jack of all trades when it comes to racing. You've uh, been a public handicapper, uh, you know, do all sorts of stuff for St. Houston. Also, a you know, very talented horse player, contest player. Tell me, let's let's go all the way back. So 
you've been 38 and playing the horses for 30 plus years. How did you get uh, involved in racing? So my, my, my father, my late father actually um, took me to the track when I was seven, we lived in Dallas. Um, he is, he was a New Yorker and I was shocked when he moved to Texas that there was no racing. I think he assumed like everybody on that side of the Hudson does that uh, everybody that lives in Texas had a ranch and a horse and a bull and that everybody raced horses left and right. So he was stunned that there was no racing. Eventually he decided to take me to the fairgrounds in New Orleans, which is one of the oldest racetracks in America. Um, and so we went on a day trip and, and I loved it. I thought the, you know, the sights and sounds of the track and the program and info. And, you know, I've always been kind of a, a geek for numbers and I love crossword puzzles. And so figuring things out for me was always a ton of fun. And, um, and so I, I, I was really intrigued by all of that. And, and he was I actually, I actually said in his eulogy, I said, you know, when I left, I said to him, Hey dad, when are we going back? And he just smiled from ear to ear because he realized that I liked it. And so luckily a racetrack opened in the Dallas Fort Worth area shortly after that. And we started going a lot and, you know, that became a weekly thing for us, sometimes more than that. And we lived 45 minutes from the track. So, I mean, it was a, it was a real investment in time. My mother scoffed at us pretty frequently about going, but um, so we, we, you know, became enthusiasts very quickly. I was a fan of the game anyway. Um, I love horses. I'm allergic to horses. You can probably tell the yeah, story. So am I. So, so um, but I think it's, you know, I, I love them. I, I think they're, they're just majestic creatures that uh, that we're lucky to get to watch, period. And, you know, the handicapping part of it became just really intriguing. I mean, figuring out what um, what what it is that you need to in order to pick a winner and why horses win, why they lose. And so I was like a sponge. I mean, nine or 10 years old, I used to wear these guys out at Sam Houston, at, at uh, Trinity Meadows, which was a racetrack we went to in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. There were actually a number of really good horse players. Of course, all of them were from somewhere else. Right. Because there was no, you know, no Texans that had really been into racing. And so I would just ask them questions left and right. I would pepper my father the whole way back and forth from the track about, you know, how do you handle track biases and what do you do about horses that are dropping in class, you know, and this and that. And so I was uh, just incredibly intrigued by it. And it probably things sort of ramped up for me in 2008. Uh, I was uh, I was a couple of years out of college and I was working a job that I didn't really plan on being any kind of long term scenario. And I got an email one night from a guy that said, I want you to to do picks uh, analysis and selections on my website because there were a couple of places where I was doing them for free at that point. And I just kind of laughed at it. I didn't think it was anything serious. And it turned out that he was the president of Capital Off Track Betting which is an off-track betting group in, in upstate New York. And so I started working for them and I became a public handicapper at that point. And, you know, that blossomed from there. It was basically just a matter of what opportunities I got from there and uh, haven't squandered all of them, uh, luckily. Well, let's, let's, let's start there then. Tell me, tell me the process of being a public handicapper. Uh, you're evaluated in part on the percentage of winners. Uh, so it's, it's a very different than, than handicapping uh, and, and betting the races ultimately. And I guess the other part of it is that you're making your picks uh, multiple days in advance. Yeah, exactly. And the challenge there is, you know, you're trying to pick winners, but at the same time, you're trying to put the public on what you think are live horses. And, and they may not all win, you know, but if I could, I felt good about being able to pick winners that went off two to one, but I felt really good about picking horses that were 12 or 15 to one that ran second. You know, it was frustrating when they didn't win. And it was really fun when they did. But um, what you were trying to do was give them a, a sense of 
who might be interesting, you know, who, who might, who might the public be overlooking? Because obviously taking a, a handicappers and a better, a better's mentality into it, you want to look for what everybody else isn't finding. You know, it's, it's no different than if you're betting on sports. I mean, you, you want to, you want to go against the grain. And so I was very fortunate to be helped a lot by people that were very good at it. Um, and, and I asked them a lot of questions as well. And so it was a lot of it too, uh, that, that John Signer, who I referenced from Capital OTB, what he said to me is, I like that you're able to write. He said, because you can write up something about each race and maybe in the writing you'll find uh, or you'll put in something that people can can kind of glean something from. And so I used to write 1500 words per Naira card. I mean, it was pretty extensive. And so, I mean, the handicapping would take me a few hours and then it'd probably take me 30 minutes or so to to write it all up. But, yeah, that was the focus was pick winners while also putting the public on horses that uh, that might put them in position to bet and make money. The, obviously, the other tricky part of it is that you're not telling people what to bet, right? You're telling people who you like. And so there were a lot of days where people would say, oh, I looked at your picks. I mean, there was no way that I could make money with that. And that's true. But a public handicapper, again, is just kind of trying to give you some broad strokes and some guidelines on maybe how to approach the races. And so for, for us, what's the, you know, the, what's the best way that, that we should use the information for a public handicapper? I think you should take it and integrate it into your own process. Um, I mean, I'm sure even to this day, I know there are people whose whose picks and whose opinions I look at when I'm going to bet. Um, I mean, I'm sure you do something somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we fortunately, there's so much information out there now that we can sort of go through it and figure out whose opinion we care about, more importantly, whose we don't, and um, and sort of get some ideas from that. And, you know, to me, it's to be should be used as an enhancement. You know, you should have your process. You should go through the races in the fashion that you're most comfortable uh, using the principles that you found to be most useful. And then you could say, hey, you know, maybe I want to see who who, you know, Brian likes or who Andy likes and and integrate that into to my own handicapping, because maybe there's something I missed. The other thing is that in a day and age of simulcasting where, you know, we could potentially find ourselves betting on you know, depending on, on, you know, what weekend it is, but obviously with the the prep races to the Kentucky Derby, you know, you and I are going to have weekends where we're betting or interested potentially in betting on races from racetracks that we probably don't follow that closely. And there might be some individuals that do that. We want to see a little bit about, you know, what they have to say about it. And so I think that's the most effective way to use a, a public, a public handicapper's opinion, but you can't blindly bet what they say, right? That's not, that's just, that doesn't work. And I, and people re- really still listen in, in, listen and follow public handicappers. I mean, it, it's something that, uh, that I guess in part that really helped build a following for you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was absolutely flabbergasted the first time I went to Saratoga and uh, somebody walked up to me, I was standing outside the paddock and they were like, Hey, I follow your picks on Capital OTB every day. I turned around and looked behind me, see who they might've been talking to. So, uh, I was, and, and, and another, so, uh, John, who I referenced came up to me and he's like, Oh yeah. He said, there's a a whole contingent of people at the the teletheater that that want your picks and they need them printed out and so we print them out and put them there and you know so I, I thought wow I mean this really I had no idea what a you know what an incredibly hungry racing community they are and I mean look you're sitting a few hours away from Oakland which is very similar I mean that's a racing community that just loves its racing and they'll look for information from just about anybody so yeah there really are there are a lot of people and part of it is you know I think people take the mentality of, well, look, I didn't do the work. He probably did. He or she did. Let me see what they have to say. Um, you've also made the morning line. I guess you, you're making it now for Sam Houston. Um, tell me about the process that you go through to make a morning line. Again, what makes a good morning line? Yeah. So, you know, I would say with the morning line, what you're trying to do, which is a really, really tough exercise is predicting what the public's going to do, right? You're, you're not, 
you're using some of your opinions, but you're, you're also trying to get into their heads a little bit. And so I think the importance of self-analyzing and really trying to, you know, to hone in on what you're getting right, but more importantly, what you're getting wrong and limited, limiting what you're getting wrong uh, while taking a deep understanding of it is important. And I think that I think one of the things that I struggled with, and this is, I, I want to say the fifth year I've made the morning line, it was uh, odds combinations. You know, don't, it, it's stupid to do. I never, I almost never put the same horse, two horses, the same price under 10 to one, because to me, there should be differentiation and you should have kind of a, a linear order that you think they're going to go off in because you are, you know, the tricky thing about it is you are leading the public a little bit. I mean, you're showing them a little bit about what you think they're going to do. And a lot of people bet based on that. Um, not people that probably have a lot of success, um, but people bet blindly into multi-race bets based on the morning line. And so you're trying to lead them without misleading them while predicting what they're going to do while trying to think like them, but also putting your own spin on it, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. And so in part, any horse that's below 10 to one, you have, you have a sort of a set order that you work with then when you're creating the line. Yeah. I mean, I'll do like two, three, four, nine to two, six, eight, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. I'll, or I'll do five to two, seven to two, nine to two, six, eight. I mean, it'll make all of you, it'll make you and your students laugh that I limit the amount of times I probably try to do five to twos and seven to twos because I put 3.5 or 2.5 in my spreadsheet. And if I don't convert the decimals, the woman who enters them at Sam Houston does not convert them for me. So she'll no. enter them as like 25 to one or 35 to one or anything like that. So um, yeah, it's important to convert the decimals. I've had that bite burn me a couple of times. I had a horse that I wanted to be seven to two. I left the three point five and she made the horse three to five on the morning line. Luckily it jumped. <laughs> <laughs> um uh so in the in the the sort of morning line process what is the i mean wh what is the starting point and i guess this is really a question is what is the most important thing to the public right is it is it trainer is it jockey is it buyer speed figure interesting question two years ago i would have told you without any hesitation whatsoever buyer speed figures i still think that's the single most important thing I still think that's the one thing that ties together the public's ability to analyze horses is that they just compare speed figures and the horses that are appreciably faster on buyer speed figures are always going to get bet more heavily. It's my opinion, and I've asked a couple of morning line makers, and I've asked a couple of public handicappers if they're feeling similarly, um, human connections are, are driving the market so much more now than they ever have before, in my opinion. And I mean, there have been times at this meet at Sam Houston where I've looked at the tote board after the race and was like, how the heck did that horse go off six to five? You know, and it could be that the horse was trained by a guy that was on a, you know, six for 10 run or something like that. Or right now we have one jockey that's winning at a, at a 32% clip. And so every one of his horses, especially when he rides for a certain trainer is automatically a click or two down from where they would be sometimes even more than that. So I would say that definitely the combo answer is buyer speed figures and human connections, but human connections mean so much more than they did before. I think the other thing is that there are so many speed figures out there that I think some people might be uh, devotees of a different type of figure. And whether it's a thoroughgraph or, you know, a time form US, a pace based figure or a brisnet figure or something like that. So I think the, the power of the buyer figure, while still unsurpassed in terms of importance, is maybe not quite what it was. So when you're so given that you do both public handicapping and make the odds line for Sam Houston, is that a 
is that a separate process? I guess, you know, you're handicapping the race and you're probably making the line and doing all that at the same time, right? No, I do it in two different phases um, because I don't think I'd be able to, well, uh, I mean, one, one part of the reason is because I have to turn in the morning line the morning after draw day. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of cases, I won't even start looking at the PPs for a given card until the card starts at whether it's four o'clock or six forty-five central time. Um, and so I, I, and I have to turn that in by 9 a.m. the next morning. So I'll do that a little bit more. Um, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't take as long, right? I mean, it doesn't take nearly as long to make a morning line as it would to handicap a race. So usually what, I, what I'll do is I'll make the morning line the night of the draw or the morning after the draw, and then I'll handicap about 72 hours out. So I usually mm-hmm. start handicapping for the following week on Sunday. And between Sunday and Tuesday, I handicap Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, since we're on a four-day schedule right now is there any can these the the ones that you the morning lines that you miss really badly um do those horses tend to run well or is it just tend to be noise what i'm curious if there's any any sort of consistent pattern there you know it's funny when you make a horse eight to one and they go off five to two you hear it but there have been a couple of horses at this meet where i made short prices that went off one went off eight to one and one went off six to one and they both won and nobody said anything so, you know, it's funny when, when you, it's easier to point out and, and quite honestly, it's going to happen more frequently that you're going to make a horse too big a price and they're going to go off much shorter than that. Um, you know, there was one last week that I made, I think six to one and the horse went off nine to five and I picked the horse and he ran horribly. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was one where I kind of felt smart and dumb at the same time because I shouldn't have picked the horse. I would have never picked him if he was nine to five, but I didn't think he was nine to five shot. So, you know, the other thing is that you're, you're also looking and making a morning line, much like with handicapping, you're looking for other elements that could be predictive too. Like what about the pace scenario? You know, is a horse the lone speed or does, does it look like a race that's loaded with speed and, and, and you want, you know, this horse is a, is a really good confirmed closer. One thing I really struggled with the first couple of years I made morning lines were surfaces. You know, I'm somebody that in my own handicapping, I'm not blindly taking dirt horses going to turf unless they have pedigree or they have a trainer that does this with any kind of regularity. The public doesn't think like that. The public bets dirt horses on turf at, almost as if they're surface neutral. And, and so that was something that I really had to, you know, the third or fourth night, I was like, damn, this horse went off way shorter than I thought. And I thought, you know, you got to take a look at these speed figures. And if they're in line with what everybody else in the race is running, then the public is going to treat them like they're on even, even uh, level playing field. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm, I, I've, I've been very critical about the Oakland uh, morning line maker. And it's just been it's been stunning, though. The odds uh, are really baffling at times. I mean, I, I, I looked at the ninth race at Oakland on Saturday and the 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 morning line maker had made eight to one a horse that was trained by John Heron, who's, you know, three for 170 over the last five years, you know, something, you know, and, and ridden by Kelsey Har. Um, you know, who's a low percentage jock and, and the morning line maker made that horse eight to one. I was pretty excited about the horse. Um, and I thought I might get double digits and the horse opened up at even money and went wow. off his favorite with a Diodoro and Asiason and two Hartmans in the race. And so, um, it was the fastest horse, but it was coming out of a starter race into an allowance race. So it's just, it's hard to, it's really hard to predict. And I don't know whether, you know, I don't know whether it's the, um, you know, the extent that even it's the sort of computers changing, changing uh, um, the betting markets. I, I don't, I don't feel for it, but it is, it is, I, I don't envy that task uh, 
that you have to do. How'd the horse but, run? Uh, the horse finished second. I'm going to finish second at five to two off an eight to one morning line. And, um, but it was again, a very strangely bet race. In fact, I found a lot of those races were strangely bet. There was a, the following race, a 10th race had, a, um, an Asheson that looked like it should have been three to five. And then there was a firster, you know, a hot firster. Oh, plausible denial. Yeah. yeah they took yeah. A, just a boatload of money. And, and again, right. that stuff is hard to predict. That stuff is sort of out of your control too. Right. So. Oh, totally. And completely. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, there are like David Aragona, who is a, an excellent morning line maker in, in New York. Um, he will, especially at Saratoga, he has a source that gives him workout information because he knows that the market is driven so heavily by, information on workouts, which is becoming more readily available than it's ever been before. But I mean, again, I'm not getting Sam Houston workout info seven days out on draw day. And and quite honestly, I I really wouldn't need it because there's so little money that would be swayed by that anyway. Um, But, you know, it's funny that it works out sometimes that human connections can be a a real help too. I mean, there was a race Friday night and and I do the the pre-race show at Sam Houston with Trey Stiles, who's a a good handicapper, very accomplished contest player. He's qualified for the NHC 20 years in a row. And we were looking at a turf race and I explained to him that I liked a horse that was trained by a trainer that was one for 34 or one for 40 at the meet and, and was like three for 120 last year. Cause I thought this horse ran much better than the other horse coming out of the race. I made them three to one and four to one respectively. I liked the horse that was four to one. And I told Trey, I said, I think this horse is a cinch. The horse won by eight lengths at seven to one. And, you know, I, but the public was never going to bet Ron Katara, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just not going to touch those horses. And, and one of the things that I liked was that Ron Katara was actually reaching out to a, a 20% rider. And, and I thought, okay, well, Valdez Jimenez will drive the price down. But, you know, the public is funny like that. They, they will just, they'll stick to, there was an Asmussen in there. There was a Danny Pish horse. And so they'll stick to the ones that they know and pretty, pretty uh, passionately. And, and that creates some opportunities for, to find some value. You know, you're totally locked in then, right? You're making the morning line, you're doing picks, and you're watching the race at the same time to the extent that, you know, some race callers, they, they memorize the silks, they call the race, and they move on to the next, and the horses sort of blend, they, you know, they, they just sort of blend in the, in the rearview mirror as a bunch of colors and numbers. So for you, it's, it's you're following these horses week by week um, and, and watching the races, watching the replays, and doing the handicapping, right? So, yeah, exactly. And you're sort of, I mean, the good thing is that by this point, I've memorized what a lot of people's silks look like. So, I mean, I'll look at the program and see that, you know, if it's a Steve Williams horse, it's a, it's a black backdrop and a red cross and a red cap. And then if it's Julie and Jeff per year, it's brown with a turquoise P and turquoise sleeves. And so I can start coloring those in before they even come on the track. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's helpful. But yeah, I mean, I, um, because I'm so involved, as you're alluding to, I, I sort of don't, forget these right away. And, and that is detrimental sometimes because, you know, if you see a horse that is running maybe for the third time in a given night in Steve Asmussen silks, which are pretty nondescript, um, you're thinking, oh, well, that must be, you know, so-and-so that must be Sparky Hale. And you're like, no, Sparky Hale was in the third. This is a different horse. So you do have to kind of, you kind of forget it. I picked up a couple of tips from, uh, Travis came and visited in late January and I said to him, you know, what do you, did you ever get involved with blinkers, shadow rolls, anything like that? And he said, I write down as much as I possibly can that might bail me out. So I will, I will uh, color a horse's, horse's silks onto the program. And then if they're wearing blinkers, I'll put a B next to their silks with the color of the blinkers. The only thing I've done, and I think they were surprised because they generally didn't hear from the announcer, was I called the jocks room the second week of the meet. And I said, please, please, please 
we have a lot of coupled entries. If they're wearing the same silks, give them different color caps. And mm-hmm. so that's been a very helpful. You know, a guy like Carl Broberg has a lot of coupled entries and he has these very bright, very distinct silks. But I mean, if they're both wearing red caps, red's like a, a brutal color, especially at night. You know, you don't always see it that great when they're stacked across the track. So one wears a lime green cap and one wears red and it makes me happy. So what's your process? Take me through your process of preparing for a race call from the last race ends. You've announced the winners. You've announced the mutuals. Uh, what's your next 20 minutes like? So some nights I do the, the uh, paddock preview as well. And so I'll get on at about 14 or 15 minutes to post and just talk through the four biggest top four contenders for me. And that's helpful when I do it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it is a pain sometimes too, to be doing that also. And, um, you know, last week I, I, I have a day job as well. So I was leading a sales training during the week and then I had to do paddock previews three of the four nights. And by Saturday night, I was like, good God, I'm tired of hearing myself. Um, so I was, I was tired. I was tired of talking. I was pumping Ricola like crazy so i've never been at a loss for words as you can tell but um but yeah so from 20 minutes to post until 15 or so relaxing and then uh you know the claims clerk will call me about whether there were any claims and tv and i'll check in periodically throughout the night to make sure everything looks good on the feed and then if they're in the paddock if i'm doing the paddock preview otherwise i I don't do anything until they come on the track and so usually they come on the track i announce that they're on the track uh, what the wagers available are color in the silks and i'll spend that next minute or two memorizing and um and then usually i'll pick the binoculars back up with about a minute to post tell everybody you know final call for uh the pick four whatever race it is that's starting up and go back through the field again and make sure i've got all the silks down and let them go now is there any is there any i mean are there race callers obviously there are a bunch that you look up to are there any any um any that you you sort of watch their replays look to imitate uh uh sort of style that you're trying to develop. I know you want to in part develop your own style, but, but kind of who would be the ones in the past that, that, that you look up to or try to emulate? I mean, everybody, I think everybody that's anywhere between what 20, 30 and, and 70 um, or more would say Tom Durkin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we all sort of listen to Tom Durkin. And one of the things that made Tom Durkin who he was is that he had a characteristic that nobody else will ever have, no matter how hard they try and develop it, which was he had an uncanny ability to deliver in the moment. You know, he, he may have even had lines ready, but he delivered them so flawlessly and he had an acting background, right? So it came off so seamlessly. So, I mean, I think describing the action is a big thing um, like he did. I also think that one of the things I always admired about, you know, vintage Trevor Denman who called for years in Southern California, still does, was that he could pick up horses that were moving quickly. And so that's something I've tried to get better at over the course of the meet so far. Um, but actually, the guy that I listen to most and, and try and pick up ideas from is Terry Spargo, who used to call in Dubai. And he calls in Australia now. And so you'll hear me say uh, things like down the side of the track and so-and-so is the pilot and so-and-so is giving them something to catch. And so-and-so whips them in, you know, and, and so that's I like his I like some of his phrases and the way he uses them. And one of the things I like about it is American racing fans haven't listened to him that much. So, I mean, if I want to, you know, if I want to listen to somebody, um, I'm going to, I want to listen to somebody that maybe we've not heard that much of because, you know, one of the things that, and I think people only say this necessarily when they're maybe a little bit jealous. Um, And I know, I know like Travis got a lot of, Oh, you sat, you, you try to sound like Tom Durkin and he really wasn't, but he had grew Mm -hmm. up, he grew up listening to Tom Durkin. 
right? I mean, so of course there were going to be, you know, there were going to be things that you said. One of the things that I would love to be able to do like Tom Durkin is use very descriptive words. Um, you know, I remember watching a race probably 15 years ago and they were just in a breakneck pace duel and Tom Durkin said a surfeit of speed. And I was mm -hmm. like, what the hell is a surfeit? <laughs> <laughs> and I immediately went to, to, you know, my phone to look up what it is in the dictionary. And, you know, when Buddy Saint won the Wood Memorial or won the Remsen in 2009, he said that Buddy Saint subjugated the field. And I mean, to be able to use words like that, that really aren't part of, of a, a normal person's vernacular, that's awesome, right? In mm -hmm. a baseball, I mean, that's really, really really a fun thing to be able to do. So um, yeah, a little, little bit of all of those guys, but one of the good things is that I, I love watching and listening to races anyway. So, I mean, if there's anything that I can pick up um, and we have a lot of callers in America that have a, a unique style that, uh, that is very interesting. I mean, I think John Dooley at the fairgrounds and formerly at Arlington now at Indiana grand is, is one of the best around when it comes to the way he describes the action and the words that he uses. And uh, I think he's, I mean, I think there are beyond that, there are a number that are terrific. So I guess, you know, I guess uh, given that you do all this public handicapping, that, that you tend to be fairly much a, a generalist in terms of your horse playing style. You, uh, you know, do you have particular types of race that you look to play or are you just playing races when, when something cuts in your favor? Yeah, more of the latter. I mean, I'm looking for horses off of uh, negative trips, whether it was pace related or something that they ran into along the way. Um, you know, there was a horse that I noticed the when the race went on and then I, I watched back I, I noticed last week and so I I exchanged notes a lot of times with a mutual friend of ours Jack Jenkins who does a lot of work watching replays about Sam Houston and uh, the group that he watches replays for and makes a lot of notes I told him last week I said I think we have a I think we had a dead rail at Sam Houston so most of the, the horses that did their best running did so three or more paths off the inside and more so the problem was that two times during the night a short priced horse went down to the inside and they just spun their wheels. And so we've had that happen a couple of times. And so there were some horses that uh, opening weekend that happened to, and he and I sort of kicked ourselves because one of them came back and won at 30 to one two weeks after. And she had been on a dead rail opening night, came back and ran in the stakes race and, and wired the field at 30 to one. So I said to him, we're not letting any more of these dead rail horses. Go. <laughs> um, so luckily one, you know, one came back and one, a couple of weeks later, that was like three to one. And so I, uh, he said, I wish it had been more of a price. And so I said, I don't know. I bet the horse to win. I was willing to take the, the three to one. I didn't have a problem with it. I had to pick four. Um, so yeah, it, those, I mean, I want those kind of horses, you know, anything where I feel like I have an edge versus with information or something that everybody else doesn't, because that decreases the there that, that's not gambling. That's horse playing. So, uh, you know, right now you're, you're doing all this for Sam Houston and you're still doing public handicapping for, for Naira, for Aqueduct. Is that, and, and so that, those basically the tracks you play is that, you know, you're so focused on these things. I imagine that, that, that everything else kind of been swept by the wayside, not playing in the Oakland park, I guess. Yeah. I just detest free time. Um, so <laughs> yeah, no, I really haven't been playing any Oakland and I feel, you know, I almost feel bad because I, I actually had years in the past where I was, was public handicapping Oakland. I worked for a service that sold picks um, my, my, uh, compensation was tied to how many of them were sold, but I also did it anonymously. So, um, nobody knew that it was me per se, 
um, because I'm, I'm very proud to say that my picks have never been for sale. They've always been free. And, um, and so I did, I, I did Oakland for, I want to say three or four years between 2011 and 2014. And, 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 the, and the racing's really gotten better since then. It was good then, but it's, it's even gotten better now. So no, I kind of lamented and I'm glad the last few weeks will be after Sam Houston's done. So I'll have a little bit more time to look because, you know, there are a lot of characteristics of it that I enjoy. It's all dirt racing. I like turf racing as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't hate turf racing as much as you, but, um, but I, I, you know, I like dirt racing and the distances are, are simple and the claiming races can be a lot of fun because you're looking for, you know, you could take little nuggets of information that might fit your style or your, your preferred uh, way of playing and really maximize them in a, you know, in a race like that, in a situation like that. So yeah, I'll have to have a little, little Oakland on the horizon. Mm-hmm. I always think of of, uh, of some of your scores uh, when we've been hanging out is when, uh, you know, a race will, you know, look look like it has a little speed or something like that. And then will ultimately collapse and some big boxcar prices will come in and then you'll score out. And uh, I, I guess it was a couple of years in a row that happened in the Woody Stevens and uh, and you made a big score. And uh, um, so the, the pace collapse has always been, uh, I guess, one of your big angles. Talk, about, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I love extreme pace scenarios. So I, I will, you know, I remember the first time I qualified for the NHC, which uh, was in 2008, I had a number of big price winners and it sort of flew in the face of the way I normally play because two of them were, were wire to wire winners. And it's not that I don't play speed horses, but, you know, I would generally favor more of a, of a mid-pack type of horse. And especially when I was younger and I realized as time went by on the dirt, you really need to have positional speed, especially, you know, as, 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 I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more hip to that, but, um, so yeah, so I, I, I will look for a lot of times I will go through Timeform us, which is a, a, a handicapping service that makes speed figures based on pace. And so I will go through and find what I think are going to be the extreme pace scenarios on a given day or on a given card. And the Woody Stevens and I have just always gotten along really well. Uh, it's a race where, um, for everybody, you know, for, for everyone listening that, that isn't familiar, it's a seven furlong race run on Belmont Stakes Day, which is the third leg of the Triple Crown. So by then, trainers have given up their derby aspirations. They've given up on, on their horses going long, and they've sort of taken their medicine and they're cutting them back in distance. And that's really what I've been able to do is find those horses that maybe were campaigned poorly in, in the quest to get to the Kentucky Derby that really should have been sprinting the whole time. And so I think that... Uh, and then, and then, you know, the one, I probably the one that was the most fun. And I think I actually stood up because I was yelling so much sitting next to you was uh, still having fun in 2018. And he was a classic one for me because he had, he had gone wide at uh, Pimlico on Preakness day. The inside was good. Speed was really good. He was the only one who closed and the pace was coated blue on time from us. I and mean, it was slow. And so I thought, oh man, I can't, I can't get enough of still having fun. And, and then it turned out that the race was just packed with speed, right? I mean, subsequent grade one winners, promises fulfilled, world of trouble, um, strike power was a subsequent graded stake winner. They just threw it down in the opening half mile. And I looked at our friend Philly Joe halfway through and I said, uh, I said, still having fun can't lose. And so he blew by everybody. But yeah, I love a, I love a good old fashioned pace collapse. And I feel like when that happens, I have a, I like chaos um, in, in a race. I'm good with, with races that are a little chaotic. I'm the guy that's complaining when it's a merry-go-round and nobody changes position. So what's the, you know, what's your plan of attack? How do you make a decision? So you do your handicapping, you decide who you like, you decide how the race might turn out. How do you decide, 
you know, tell me about the decision-making process, how you put that into play, what pools you want to attack. I mean, I'm, I'm still sort of old fashioned. I, I like to bet to win. Um, especially if a horse is, if I have a, a theoretical, you know, obviously I'm making the morning line, but I'll have a theoretical odds line myself. And if a horse crosses over what I think is a, a fair win price, I'll make a win bet. Um, I try to keep my, my multi-race bets sort of restricted to uh, very targeted. See, I don't play pick threes anymore that are probably more expensive than four to $6 for a $1 unit, because I realized over time, you know, making, when I was younger, I, I would make one by five or two by five by four, pick three wheels for a dollar. And I mean, good luck making money betting those pretty consistently. You're going to need, you're going to need two big prices. And so um, I, I'll do that. I'll, I'll kind of keep it to that. I'll bet some daily doubles, but I'll dabble in the pick five and pick six pools. We've got some pick sixes at lower increments now that aren't jackpots that I'll try, but I've got to have some opinions along the way. I mean, I've got to feel pretty strongly about a couple of legs in order to do that. So the process really for me boils down to what are the prices on the horses that I like? And, you know, 10 years ago, I would have told you the first thing I'm going to do is figure out how to bet a trifecta. And now it's more of, you know, let me bet this horse to win. Let me see if there's one or two that I want to use in the exacta. And the trifecta will only come in in a big field where I might like multiple horses that are prices. And I guess, uh, you know, the, the others would fill out. So like, if you think there's a big pace in error, that's maybe we, we'd fill out a try as opposed yeah, to exactly. Right. So are you one of the guy, do you, are you a bet little to make a lot or you'll take what they give you in terms of, uh, in terms of price? More of a take what they give you. The problem that I, I psychologically, I struggle with the bet a little to make a lot because you're going to take some nasty beats and, you know, I know that, that theoretically people who do that would say, well, at least you didn't lose a lot of money, but it was like, okay, so if you spent eight and you would have hit, if you spent 16, was the $8 worth it? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, so I think there's a, I think there's a fine line there. I've always been an advocate of bet, bet in your comfort zone. You know, if you're somebody that we would always marvel if there was a guy that, uh, that would come in the jockey club at Sam Houston pretty frequently. My dad and I would go every week to, to watch and bet on the simulcast racing. And there was a guy who would come in and he would make pick six tickets for whatever track was running in New York. And he would spend no more than $8. And a lot of times he would go around and he would collect $2 from three different people because he just wasn't going to bet a lot. And so, you know, we would all joke that, you know, Joe could get more out of $8 than the average person could for a hundred. And so one of the guys said one day, I bet if we gave Joe, 60 80 or 100 dollars a day to play this pick six he would hit left and right and i said no i don't think he would because his handicapping is so geared towards finding value with a low with a really small budget that he's going to get so sloppy when he starts spending a lot more money and i think that's the danger right is that when you spread or you become a little bit more undisciplined you'll lose and you'll lose more so there's a fine line but i I would say i'm more of a you know take what they give you have your opinions and let the let the board and your opinion sort of mesh. Is there a price you won't take, or if you like a four to five horse to win and you think it's value, would you bet it? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent, somewhat of a controversial take, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll even bet a three to five if I like it. I, I mean, um, and right. And I think both of us would agree that, I mean, we know our strike rate on that is going to have to be high, but I mean, I'm not, if I'm betting a horse to win at less than six to five, I mean, I'm feeling like this is a horse that, in my opinion, is 90 plus percent to win. And, and you know, there are times where, you know, those are a four to five shot that I'm going to bet to win. 
that's a horse that I think is one to five to win. Right. And if my opinion's right, then I'm going to win and I'll take that 360 and go on down the road. Do you have a lot of late money movements at Sam? I know if you're betting the wind pool a lot, I'm wondering to the extent that, uh, that you fall victim to that. We have a ton. Yeah. You know, still being kind of a small to mid-sized track. Um, a lot of times 70 to 80% of our wind pool is coming in in the final three flashes. So, I mean, that's really, really tricky. And, uh, you know, the night, the three to one that I was referencing before one, I was standing there as they were walking to the gate, it was a seven furlong race. They're walking down the chute. And the whole time I'm like, damn it, this horse is going to go down to six to five. I'm going to be so pissed because it looked like he was the lone speed on paper too. Luckily there were some big name trainers in there who were going to protect me a little bit, but yeah, I was sort of, I was kind of anxious the whole time and uh, luckily he didn't get that that big late flash but there have been a couple of times at this meet where horses took enormous late odds drops and i've gotten a couple of love notes on twitter from people asking me why it happened as if i had that information yeah, in my <laughs> yeah as but, if that's if, if, if as if that's piped up to you up in the uh up in the box. So let me just sort of, I was going to tell him that also that, that I got the crop report from Clarence Beaks as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well, let me just end with some quick hitters here. What's, what's your, um, uh, what's been your, uh, what's been your biggest score? Uh, one race that you just really connected. Um, well, my biggest score was betting for a group that hit the pick five at Saratoga in 2016 on September 5th, 2016 for $110,000. Um, but my, you know, like a lot, like, like yourself, you've been much better at it than me. A lot of my biggest scores are in contests. So, I mean, it's been a combination of the horseplay plus the contest. I think probably the score that I was most proud of was, uh, I go on the, at the races with Steve big show every Friday and the night before the day before the Pegasus world cup in 2018, I, I basically, he walked through the pick five sequence with me and I essentially gave out a. Uh, what would have been an $8 pick five ticket if you played it and it paid $10,000. So I mean, there was a 52 to one shot in one that, leg. Yeah. That, and, and I had a friend text me afterwards and he was like, damn, you gave out the whole pick five. Nobody bet it. And so I said, good, I did. Um, so yeah, but that was probably, those were the ones I was most proud of. Um, that weekend in 2016, the, the group of guys that I had gotten together, I, I mean, we we hit for about $125,000 the last weekend of the Saratoga meet. So, I mean, that was, that was incredible. Um, it was just a good, but also in, in the race that kicked off the pick five sequence, I bet, and actually bet him on track um, uh, at Sam Houston, I bet a bunch of 50 cent trifectas. And so I keyed three horses and they, I remember they were the eight, they were the 111 and 13. And so I played 111, 13, 111, 13, all 111, 13, all 111, 13, et cetera, et cetera, move the alls around. Then I narrowed the field down. And so the race came in 11, 13, one. And so I turned and they were, they were like, I don't remember the exact odds, but you know, they were somewhere along the lines of eight to one, 12 to one and 30 to one. And so I turned around, I looked at my father and I said, I got it all. And so he's like, what do you have? I said, I have $3 on the try. And so that was about 15 grand. Um, so I still, I took a picture of the 15, $1,000 bill packs and you know, I was 30 years old. So, I mean, I, mm, felt, real money. It. I yeah. felt smart for a few minutes. Uh, do you remember your uh, worst beat? One that, uh, one that you uh, maybe even still think about? God, there's so many, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you always remember, you remember those too much. Probably I had a, there was a pick. Well, I'll tell you it was a, it wasn't a bad beat. It was a bad betting decision. So when COVID started, I bet the pick five late at Oakland on that Saturday of the rebel. And I hit every other leg and I missed Serengeti Empress winning the Azari. 
and it paid $25,000. And I thought, you moron. I mean, to not use her. And I don't know why I was being such a smart ass and not using her. So that was a, that was a pretty bad beat. I got disqualified on a horse that, that at Belmont in 2010 that, you know, I probably would have made eight or 10 grand at that stage of my life. That was really, really meaningful money. So I felt really bad about that, but yeah, those are probably the, the ones that stick out. We could go on and on a couple more hours. I'm sure I'd come up with plenty. Yeah. There, I mean, I, I've never been able to, I still can't walk away from a bad beat in, and, and uh, you know, I still have this sort of mentality of, of when I take a bad beat, I'm liable to bet more or go on tilt, or even if I, you know, the opposite, right. If I make a big score, I'm liable to, um, to pull back. So that's, you know, I guess you do this more than I do, but it's, it's, that's, you know, it's just still hard. As long as I do this, it's still hard to sort of walk away from a bad beat. Um, It is. No, it's really hard. I mean, and the thing is, you know, some nights it's, it's, some days you you get beat for you know whatever the amount of money is and and it really is not necessarily a significant sum of money but you're mad because maybe you had a good opinion and maybe you didn't get the right trip or maybe you know your horse maybe your horse was bad also but you mm-hmm. you know you're you're annoyed about it because you felt like you put the work in you you know you made a good conscious decision and it just didn't pan out so yeah there's a there's a very annoying element to that mm-hmm. do you have a favorite horse of all time favorite horse i ever saw was ghost zapper um Mm. but i will admit that i saw arrogate win the 2016 breeders cup classic that probably along with rachel alexandra's haskell in 2009 were the best performances i've ever seen live so those were yeah those would be my my two but i did love ghost zapper Mm. do you have a favorite uh horse that you've seen run at sam houston latruska Oh, Latruska, yeah. I, I, I forget. Uh, the, the ladies' classic has had some really nice fillies. So. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I missed the year that Forever Unbridled one, but I loved Forever Unbridled. I mean, I thought mm. that uh, I thought she was terrific. Um, probably early on, I mean, who did I see at Sam Houston that probably wasn't as recent? Um, I was there when Kip DeVille won a race called the Texas Heritage, and he went on to be the Breeders' Cup Mile winner the following year. And, um, I mean, we saw some good horses over the years, regional horses though, Chorwan, Candid Glen, you know, those were good, good, hard knocking turf horses, but, um, yeah, those were, Latruska was the best fit my favorite horse I've seen at Sam Houston. I guess, uh, it was probably before your time at Take Charge Lady one, they had like a, a the she, state bred yeah, challenge yeah. or something at, at, uh, Sam Houston and she, she ran down there and won and, uh, and she was, she was exceptionally nice. So she was really nice. It was 2002. They had an event called the great States challenge. And uh, it was actually, it was the final weekend. It was the end of my first semester of my freshman year of college. And our exam started at the university of Dallas on Saturday. So I cursed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite, uh, favorite jockey of all time? My favorite jockey of all time is Ramon Dominguez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I told, I told Ramon that, uh, that I was that he so I was working at Louisiana Downs, which is how you and I met originally. Mm-hmm. I was working at Louisiana Downs on the broadcast, and I would interview jockeys after they won stakes races. And I said, uh, I said, Ramon, I got to tell you before we do the interview, I said you're my favorite jockey of all time. And he gave me a hug. He said, "That's really nice of you to say." Mm-hmm. Favorite uh, favorite uh, low profile trainer, one that you like to cash a bet on every once in a while. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, I guess I follow the circuit. I follow most. Uh, I still identify most with the New York circuit. Um, Charlton Baker 
I mean, he's a guy that that's still pretty low profile, even though he's won some races. He's he's a guy that you really could make money with over the years. But, you know, I'm kind of a bottom feeder when it comes to trainers like I'll, I'll bet Randy Persaud, you know, I'll bet. I mean, I, I, if, if I can find them in a scenario where they'll win, I'm dying to find, a, you know, an off the wall trainer, a low percentage trainer that might have gotten hot or they might have a, a particular style. You know, I remember I hit a nice pick five a couple of years ago at Keeneland in the spring because Randy Persaud had a horse off the claim that he was bringing back in less than a week. And Randy Persaud has inordinately good numbers bringing horses back off the claim in less than a week. It's because he generally takes these horses off better trainers. And I mean, quite honestly, he's running them off of their training. Right. Mm-hmm. He can't ruin them in a week. So, so I used this horse and, and uh, some of the people at the table with me were like, why are you betting Randy Persona? It's like, I'll bet Randy Persona if I need to. Uh, favorite, favorite major racetrack. Um, I mean, in order it, to go to Saratoga, to sit and watch a race, Santa Anita. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Saratoga is a wonderful place, but it's not a, not a great place to actually watch races. Happy place so. to watch races. Yeah. Everything else about it's wonderful, but uh, but that part. No, it really is. I mean, and I'll say that that you know, you and I have had great experiences at Belmont. Belmont's a great place mm-hmm. to watch a race. Oh, uh, sure. I hope that when they ultimately redesign it, it stays as good a, as good and as fun a place to watch a race. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think watching races at Churchill is. Uh, you I know. totally agree. Yep. Um, yep. Sam Houston Race Park excluded because they're your employer. Favorite minor racetrack. Lone Star. Um, I mean, I think Lone Star is a really terrific track. I think it's. It's very underrated. Um, I think that would probably be my favorite minor track. I mean, one of the, and I, I would say also, I mean, I would have put Arlington on there. I don't know if they would have been necessarily considered minor, but obviously minor. it's closed now. But yeah, I mean, I would say Lone Star. Arlington, I would have said a year ago, Lone Star now. You got a, you got a, a, a horse that you're eyeing for the Derby yet or not really? I still want to believe in Zandon. I still really like his Remsen. And I think he had enough of a tough trip in the Risen Star um, to be dangerous. But um, next start will be put up or shut up time. And, and quite honestly, you know, I don't mind his trainer giving him that one shot. And if he doesn't run well enough to get in, then he won't run. So I still mm-hmm. kind of hold out some hope for him, uh, maybe beyond him. I suppose I still hold out some hope for Smile Happy, too. So mm-hmm. uh, one of those. Sounds good. All right. Well, look, I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Nick. Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me.